0: Book 4, Chapter 6, of Clara Vaughan, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra. Clara Vaughan, Volume 2, by R. D. Blackmore. Book 4 chapter six chapter six annie franks was exactly as isola had described her such a nice girl kind-hearted like her father truthful ladylike and sensitive retiring too and humble-minded with a well of mute romance in the shadow of her heart a wave of which she would not for the world display the only vent she ever allowed this most expansive element was novel reading, or a little quiet hero worship. Her greatest happiness was to sit upon a lonely bank and read a slashing kirtle-axe and gramercy romance, with lots of high-born ladies in it and lots of moonlight love. If history got hard thumps among them, and chronology, like an unwound clock, was right but twice in twenty-four simple annie smiled no less so long as the summer sun flashed duly on pennon helm and gonfalon and she could see bright cavalcades winding through the greenwood shade in coat and waistcoat novels her soul took no delight not a shilling would she squeeze from her little beaded purse for all the quicksilver of dickens or the frosted gold of thackeray yet she was not by any means what fast young ladies call a spoonie. She had plenty of common sense upon the things of daily life, plenty of general information, and no lack of gentle self-respect. Ice-tempered steel I had written, but alas, the great author is dead, and they say that his kind heart was grieved by nothing so much as the charge of cynicism. If he were a cynic, would that we all were dogs. Greek, kainos omat ekon, kradien, foio C. V. 1864. Now she was wending through an upland meet for gray-clad reverie, where she might dream for days and days, and none but silly deer intrude. As we passed along in the gloaming of the May, bosomed lawn and bosky dell with lilac plumes for cavaliers and hawthorn sweeps for ladies trains the soft grey eyes of annie ceased at last to watch me and her thoughts were in costume of chevy chase or crecy by reason of the message sent the day before no one in the house expected me so we stole in quietly lest my uncle should be alarmed and I requested Gregory, Tipsy Bob's successor, to bring Jane to meet us in my own little room. Annie being installed there to her great delight, and allowed free boot of Mary Sir Knight, and now by my Hallidayne, I went to see my poor dear uncle, who by this time was prepared for my visit. Very weak he seemed, and nervous, and more rejoiced at my return than even I had expected. To me, also, it was warm comfort in my cold, pride ailment to be with one of my own kin, whom none could well disparage. There was a dignity about him, an air of lofty birth, which my own darling father had been too genial to support. Soon I perceived from my uncle's manner that something had happened since my departure to add to his uneasiness but he offered no explanation and I did not like to ask him. He in turn perceived the heavy dark despondency which, in spite of all my efforts, would at times betray itself. Pride and indignation supported me when I began to think, but then I could not always think, whereas I could always feel. Moreover, pride and indignation are, in almost every case, props that carry barbs. In a word, though I would scorn the love maiden's part, it was sad for me to know that I could never love again. With a father's tenderness he feebly drew my head to his trembling breast, and asked me in a tearful whisper what had happened to me, but I was too proud to tell him. Oh, that I had not been! What misery might have been spared to many! but all the time my head lay there i was on fire with shame and agony thinking of the breast on which my hair had last been shed now good nurse clara he said at last with a poor attempt at playfulness i shall have no more confidence in your professional skill unless you wheel me forth to-morrow with a cheerful face you are tired to-night my love and so should i have been if you had not come home Tomorrow you should tell me why you came so suddenly, and saved me a day of longing. And tomorrow, if I am strong enough, I will tell you a little history, which may be lost, like many a great one, unless it is quickly told. Stop! One cup of tea, dear, and how proud I am to pour it out for you, and then I will not keep you from a livelier friend. Tomorrow you must introduce me. I still like pretty girls. And you should have brought that lovely isola with you i can't think why you didn't she would have been most welcome come uncle i shall be jealous the young lady i have brought is quite pretty enough for you he sighed at some remembrance and then asked abruptly do you mean to sleep my darling in the little room tonight his voice shook so while he asked this question that I was certain something had alarmed him. The little room was the one I had occupied between the main corridor and his present bedroom. It was meant for an ante-room, not a sleeping chamber, but I had brought my little iron bedstead thither. To be sure I do, dear uncle, do you suppose, because I have been off duty, that I mean to be cashiered? Only one thing I must tell you, i have brought home with me one of the very best friends i ever had you have heard me talk of Guidis. i cannot bear the thought of parting with him tonight he will cry so dreadfully in the strange stables and in london he always slept on the mat outside my door may i have him in the lobby uncle you will never hear him move and he never snores except just after dinner to be sure my pet i would not part you for the world God bless you, my own child, and keep your true heart lighter. If I had been really his own child, he could not have been more loving to me than he had now become. After giving Annie Franks her tea, which she was far too deep in tournament to drink, I paid a visit to Mrs Fletcher's room and learned from her that nothing, so far as she knew, had happened to disturb my uncle mrs daldy had not been near the house and there was a rumour afloat that she had been called to take part in a revival meeting near swansea so after introducing judy who was a dreadful dog for jam and having him admired almost as much as he ought to be i returned to annie and found her in high delight with everything and everybody and most of all with her tapestry writer leaving her at last under tilly's care Judy and I were making off for our sleeping quarters, when truant Matilda followed me down the passage hastily. Oh, miss, please, miss, I want to tell you something, and I did not like to name it before that nice young lady, because I'm sure she is timid-like. Matilda looked not timid-like, but terrified exceedingly, as she stared on every side with her candle guttering. Hold your candle up, Matilda, and tell me what it is. By this time, we were in the main passage, corridor, they called it, and could see all down it by the faint light of some oil lamps, to the oriel window at the farther end, whereon the moon, now nearly full again, was shining. Why, miss, the ghost was walking last night and the night before. Nonsense, Matilda, don't be so absurd. It's true, miss, true as you stand there, Pale grey it is this time, and so tall, and the face as white as ashes. And a shiver ran through Tilly at her own description. You know, miss, it's the time of year, and she always walks three nights together, from the biggest window to this end and back again. So please to lock your door, miss, and bolt it, too, inside. Well done, Tilly. Does anyone intend to wait up for the ghost? What time does it come? One o'clock, miss, as punctual as a timepiece, but could you suppose, miss, any one would dare to wait up and see it? Then how have they seen it in the name of folly? Why, miss, I'll tell you. One of the carriage horses got an inflammation in his eyes, and the farrier give orders to have it sponged, never more than three hours between. And so William Edwards, the head groom, if you please, miss, Tilly curtsied here, because this was her legitimate sweetheart, he stops up till one o'clock to see to it, and then, or would think of taken a liberty on no account whatever, but he were that sleepy he didn't know the way to bed, so he went across the corridor for the shortcut from the kitchen gallery to the servant's passage, and there he saw it. He hadn't any light, miss, and the lamps all out. Goodness me, whatever was that, did you hear it, miss?' Yes, and see it, Tilly, it's a daddy in your candle. Go on, Tilly, will you? Am I to stop here all night and get as bad as you are? There, William Edwards, a man who never swears or drinks. There he saw all in the dark, coming so stately down the corridor, as if it hadn't room enough. With one arm up like this, a tall, pale, melancholy ghost and he knew it was the lady who was wronged and killed when the great wars was miss two hundred year agone well tilly and did he speak to it he was that frightened miss he could not move or speak but he fell again the wall in the side passage with his eyes coming out of his head and his hair up like my wicker broom and then she vanished away and he got to bed and did perspire so they was forced to wring the blankets capital tilly and who saw her the next night why that nincompoop job layson miss Our ah, william was a deal too wise to go that way any more but he did tell job layson and he a foolish empty fellow perhaps you know miss ho says job i often hear tell of her To night i'll have a peep so last night when william went to bed on the servants side down comes job and takes the front way "'Pretty impudent of him, I think. "'And, Miss, I don't know what he see. "'I never says much to him, "'but there they found him in the saddle-room "'at five o'clock this morning, "'with his heels up on a rack "'and his head down in the bucket, "'and never a bit of sponge had come near the poor mare's eye. "'Oh, thank you, Tilly. "'Perhaps you had better snuff your candle. "'No ghost will have much chance that comes near my duty.' And with that I went to bed, tired of such nonsense. An hour of deep sleep from pure weariness both of mind and body, and I awoke with every fibre full of nervous life. The moon was high in the southeast, and three narrow stripes of lozenge light fell upon the old oak floor. Although my uncle had left the gable where the windows faced the setting sun, he still kept the western wing, the house, which was built in the reign of Henry VIII, covered the site and in some parts embodied the relics of a much more ancient structure. The plan was very simple, at least as regarded the upstairs rooms. From east to west ran one long corridor, crossed at right angles, in the centre and near the ends, by three gable passages. Although there were so many servants, not half the rooms were occupied. All the best bedrooms had been empty many a year. No festivities had filled them since my father's days. Gloom and terror still hung over the eastern part, where he had been so foully murdered. In most of the downstairs windows, along the front of the house, the rickety lattice of diamond panes had been replaced by clear plate glass. But the old hall and the corridor and some of the gable windows still retained their gorgeous tints and heraldry. As the shadows of the mullions stole upon my counterpane, there began to creep across my mind uneasy inklings of the ghost. A less imaginative man than William Edwards, I, who had often enjoyed his escort, knew well there could not be. As for Job Layson. I could not tell with what creative powers his mind might be endowed, but to judge from his physiognomy, a light ring-snaffle would hold them. Thinking with less and less complacence of this apparition's story, and the red legend which lay beneath it, for the spectral lady was believed to be a certain Beatrice Vaughan, daughter of the cavalier, who perceived the moss-light and heiress of the house two hundred years ago, Thinking of this, I say, with more and more of flutter, I sat up in the bed and listened. My uncle's thick, irregular breathing, the play of an ivy leaf on the mullion, the half-hour struck by the turret clock, were all the sounds I heard, except that my heart, so listless and desponding, was reasserting some right to throb for its own safety. With my hand upon it, I listened for another minute, resolving if i heard nothing more to make a great nest in the pillows i always want three at least and shut both ears to destiny but there came before the minute passed a low long hollow sound an echo of trembling expectation in a moment i leaped from the bed though i had never heard it before i knew it could only be the bloodhound's cautious warning I flung a long cloak round me, gathered close my hair, hurried velvet slippers on, locked my uncle in, and quietly opened the outer door. There stood Guides in the moonlight, with his head toward the Far East window, his ears laid back, his crest erect, and in his throat a gurgling sound, a growl suppressed by wonder. He never turned to look at me, nor even wagged his tail but watched and waited grimly. I laid my hand upon him and then glided down the corridor, avoiding the moonlight patches. Guides followed like my shadow, never a foot behind me, his tread as stealthy as a cat's. Before I reached the oriel window where the broad light fell, something told me to draw aside and watch. I withdrew and Guides with me into the dark entrance to my father's room here we would see what came scarcely had i been there ten throbs of the heart when between me and the central light where the moonbeams fell askance rose a tall grey figure i am not quite a coward for a woman at least but every drop of blood within me at that sight stood still even guidis trembled and his growl was hushed "'and every hair upon him bristled as he crouched into my cloak. "'Slowly the form was rising, "'like a corpse raised from a coffin by the loose end of the winding sheet. "'I could not speak, I could not move, much less could I think. "'With a silent stately walk or glide, for no feet could I see, "'the figure came towards the embrasure where we lurked. "'Ashy white the face was, large the eyes and hollow, all the hair fell down the back, the form was tall and graceful, one arm was lifted as in appeal to heaven, and the shroud drooped from it, the other lay across the breast. The colour of the shroud was grey, pale, unearthly grey. For one moment as it passed, I kept my teeth from chattering. Guides crawled one step before me with his mind made up for death. Back the blood leaped to my heart as the apparition glided slowly down the corridor without sigh or footfall. What to do, I knew not. My feet were now unrooted from the ground. Should I fly into my father's death room? No, I was afraid. To stay where I was seemed best, but how could I see it come back? As I knew it would. Another such suspension of my life, and all I felt would be over. Suddenly, while still the figure was receding in the distance, I saw a great change in the bloodhound. He strode into the corridor and began to follow. At the same time, the deep gurgle in his throat revived. In a moment, it flashed through me that he had smelt the ghost to be a thing of flesh and blood. It might be my father's murderer. At any rate, it had entered as he must have done. Close behind the dog, I stole after the spectral figure. The supernatural horror fled. All my life was in my veins. What became of me, I cared not. I, who was so wretched. Almost to the end, that gliding form preceded us, then turned down a flight of steps leading to the basement. Triple Resolution gushed through me at this. This was the spot where the ghost was known to turn and glide back through the corridor. When it had descended about halfway down the staircase, where the steps were on the turn and narrow, standing at the head I distinctly heard a flop, as of a slipper heel dropping from the foot, and then caught up again. What ghost was likely to want slippers? And what mortal presence need I fear, with Judy at my side? Keeping him behind me by a gentle touch, I hurried down the stairs. Luckily, I stopped before I turned the corner, for a gleam came up the passage. The ghost had struck a Lucifer. It was a dark and narrow passage, proof to any moonlight, and the spectre lost no time in lighting a small lamp to find the study door. I mean my uncle's private study where he kept his papers. The lamp was of peculiar shape, very small, and fitted with three reflectors to throw the light in converging planes. Still, remaining in deep shadow, I saw the person, ghost no longer, produce a key, open the study door, and enter. Then an attempt was made to lock the door from the inside, but, as I knew by the sound, the false key would not work that way, and the door was only closed, whispering into Judy's ear that if he dared to move, for his honest wrath at these burglarious doings, could scarcely be controlled, I would make a ghost of him next day. I left him in the passage and softly followed the intruder. First, I looked through the keyhole. The room was very dark and full of heavy furniture. I could see nothing, but must risk the chance so I slipped in noiselessly and closed the door behind me, with the ghostly apparel thrown aside and a mask laid on an ebony desk, stood intently occupied at the large bureau which I had once so long to search, my arch-enemy, Mrs. Daldy. I was not at all surprised, having felt long since that it could be no other. Sitting upon a stiff-backed velvet chair in the shadow of an oaken bookcase, Crouch. I would not for her. I waited to see what she would do. Already the folding doors of the large bureau were open. Their creaking had drowned the noise of my entry. Before her was exposed a multitude of drawers. All the visible doors she had probably explored on the previous nights, as well as the other repositories of various kinds which the room contained. Her search was narrowed now to one particular part of this bureau. The folding doors were very large and richly inlaid with arabesques and scrollwork of satin wood and ebony. All the inside was fitted and adorned with ivory pillars, small alcoves containing baby mirrors, flights of checkered steps, and other quaint devices, besides the more businesslike and useful sliding trays. With the lamplight flashing on it, it looked like a palace for the Queen of Dolls, a place for puppet ceremony and pleasure. Every drawer was faced with marquetry. Every little door had panels of chagrin. In short, the whole thing would have been the pride of any shop in Wardour Street, when that street was itself. Having never seen it open till now, I was quite astonished, though I don't know how often my father had promised to show it to me on my very next birthday, if I were good. Probably I was never good enough. Without any hesitation, Mrs. Daldy pressed a fan, or slide, of cedar wood in the right corner of the cabinet. The slide sunk into a groove and disclosed two deep but narrow drawers. These she pulled out from their boxes and laid aside. They were full of papers, which she no doubt had already examined. Then she placed the diminutive lamp on one of the doll's steps, and produced from her pocket three or four little tools. Before commencing with these, she probed and pressed the partition between the sockets of those two drawers, in every imaginable way, a last attempt to find the countersign of some private nook which had defied her the night before. At length, with a low cry of impatience, she seized a small thin chisel and a bottle of clear liquid, with the one she softened the bule veneer upon the partition's face, and with the other she removed it. Then, after a little unscrewing, she carefully prized away the stop of cedar wood. While I admired her workmanlike proceedings, so far as they were visible to me, and the graceful action of the arms she was so proud of, her shoulder came rather in my way but i got a glimpse of the narrow vertical opening where the cedar stop had been she drew a long breath of delight and pride then thrust a wire crook into this opening and hooked forth two thin and closely fastened packets eagerly she looked at them they were what she wanted no doubt she knew their contents her object was to get hold of them having placed them carefully in her bosom she prepared for a little more joiner's work, to restore what she had dismantled. Her dexterity was so pleasing that I let her proceed for a while. She soon refixed the cedar stop, tapping it in the most knowing way with the handle of the screwdriver. Then she screwed it tightly and spread the wood with some liquid cement to carry the veneer. She had mislaid the narrow strip of tortoise shell and brass, and was looking for it on the checkered steps when I called aloud. Shall I show you where you put it, Mrs. Daldy? But where on earth did you learn your trade? Never was amazement written more strongly on any human face. If the ghost had frightened me, I now had my full revenge. She dropped the bottle of cement and it rolled on the cabinet steps. She turned. "'with her face as white as the mask and glared round the room, "'for I was still concealed in the recess. "'I thought she would have blown out the lamp, "'but she had not presence of mind enough. "'Otherwise, among all that furniture, "'it would not have been easy to catch her, "'and she knew nothing of my sentinel at the door. "'After some quiet enjoyment of her terror, "'I came forth and met her fairly.' What? Clara Vaughan? Is it possible? I thought you were in London. Is it possible that I have found a Christian so truly earnest about her soul, so yearning over the unregenerate, committing a black robbery in the dead of night? Is this what you call a wholesome conviction of sin? Low exaltation, I confess, but the highest blood in the land, if it were blood, could scarcely have forborne it, for how i abhorred that hypocrite for a time she knew not what to do or say but glared at me without much christian feeling then she tried to carry it off in a grandly superior style she drew herself up and looked as if i were not worth reasoning with perhaps you are young enough to imagine that because appearances are at this moment peculiar. Thank you. There is no need to inquire into the state of my mind. Be kind enough to restore those packets which you have stolen. Indeed, I am perfectly amazed at your audacity. What I have belongs to me righteously, and a stronger hand than yours is required to rob me. She grasped her chisel and stood in a menacing attitude. I answered her very quietly and without approaching nearer. If I wish to see you torn in pieces, I have only to raise my hand. Guidis And I gave a peculiar whistle, thoroughly known to my dog. He leaped against the door, forced the worn catch from the guard, and stood at my side. With his great eyes flashing and his fangs laid bare, Mrs. Daldy jumped to the other side of the table and seized a heavy chair. My dear child, my dear girl, I believe you are right after all. It is so hard to judge. For God's sake, keep him back. So hard to judge when one's own rights are in question. The old unregenerate tendencies will lodge you in Gloucester jail tomorrow. Once more, those papers, or... And I looked at Gwydis and began to raise my hand. His eyes were on it, and he gathered himself for the spring like a cannon recoiling. In the height of her terror, she tore her dress open and flung me the packets across the end of the table. I examined and fixed them to Judy's collar. Then we both advanced and penned her up in a corner. It was so delightful to see her for once in her native meanness, despoiled of her cant and phylactery like a Pharisee under an oil press. She fell on her knees and implored me, in plain earnest English for once, to let her go. She appealed to my self-interest and offered me partnership in her schemes, whereby alone I could regain the birthright of which I had been so heinously robbed. I only asked if she could reveal the mystery of my father's death. She could not tell me anything, or she would have jumped at the chance. At last I promised to let her go if she would show me the secret entrance under the oriel window. It was not for her own sake I released her, but to avoid the scandal and painful excitement which her trial must have created. When she departed, now thoroughly crestfallen, I followed her out of the house by the secret passage, wherein she had stored a few of her stage properties. Guides, whom, for fear of treachery, I kept at my side all the time, showed his great teeth in the moonlight, and almost challenged my right to let her go. After taking the packets from him, I gave him a sheepskin mat under the window there and left him on guard, although there was little chance of another attempt being made while the papers were in my keeping. Her mask and spectral drapery remained with me as trophies of this, my ghostly adventure. End of book four, chapter six.